Will you turn in your Bibles with me uh, this morning <clears throat> to the end of Acts chapter 4, page 1697, 1697 in your pew Bibles. Acts chapter 4, we'll begin reading with uh, verse 32. And again, I know we've been hopping around a little bit in the book of Acts at the beginning here. I hope, uh, hope you're st- sticking with us. I just want to remind you that this, uh, this portion of Scripture at the end of chapter 4 is very similar to the end of chapter 2 and the description of the church that we find there. And um, as, as you keep that in mind, note as well, and we'll be noting this morning, there are not just similarities between those two texts, but there are a couple of differences. And, and when reading Scripture... Um, and you come across texts like this that, you know, it seems like this says the same thing as this. Um, it's, it's often wise to look for the, the little differences there and, and ask what might God be, be teaching us. Anyway, we'll do a little bit of that later, but for now let's, uh, let's read from Acts 4 verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. <clears throat> Joseph sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the men or the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, up until right about now, the book of Acts, <clears throat> the book of Acts excuse me, has felt somewhat like, I think, a lazy picnic on a summer Sunday afternoon. Picture yourself maybe strolling through Harley Fest or Bastille Days, checking out the food, the people. Maybe it's the Young Achez's backyard picnic. You know, everything is upbeat. Everything is positive, as the book says. The believers are together. They're one in heart and mind. They're They're praising God and praying together and meeting together and enjoying the favor of all the people. And then right into the middle of that nice nice festival, that nice picnic, lightning falls and someone from the church actually dies. Put to death by God's own hand, nonetheless. And the rest of us are sort of left in shock. That's the end of the picnic. Isn't that sort of how you feel when, when you read Acts chapter 5, when you read the story of Ananias and Sapphira? It's sort of like, what just happened? Did, did we take a wrong turn and end up back in the Old Testament at some point? Um, did this come up in membership class? Because I don't remember it. I remember we talked about true faith and we said something about the Great Commission. I don't remember anything about the feet of the young men at the door who were going to carry us out and bury us. Is that like a subset of the deacons that we don't talk about? Um, Keep out or keep your eyes open, friends. Part of the shock, I think, may be due to our perception of the church today. I mean, these days, the church is pretty much a matter of convenience, isn't it? And, you know, what can the church do for me? We we assume that, that, you know, worship should be entertaining, Um, fellowship should happen effortlessly and if it doesn't that means that someone else must not be doing their job right Um, service should be rewarding but service opportunities should also be convenient for our schedules and they shouldn't go on too long right I mean I mean when it's done we want to feel good not sweaty not exhausted We want to feel good. And so is it any surprise, really, that we sort of bristle a bit when the church begins to bring up expectations for us? When the church begins to say things like, well, you know, your children really ought to go to Sunday school probably every week. Or when the church begins to say, you know, if you're living with unrepentant sin in your life, then you probably ought not come to the table of our Lord until that's dealt with. Or when the church begins to say that, you know, you really ought to attend worship in person if you're able. Is there any surprise then when we begin to bristle at at those sorts of things and we, we kind of think, hey, I thought I was at a picnic. What's the deal here? A number of years ago, I was invited to play golf at a private uh, golf club. Until then, my golf experience had been pretty much butchering public courses. And so uh, 
This being a hot day, I, uh, I came to the course like I usually do in shorts and a t-shirt, and I was just about to tee off, and the manager of the course came running out, and he said, hey, 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 you can't tee off here. You need to be wearing a collared shirt. We have standards here. We have rules here. Um, they let me play, but they, they had to lend me a shirt before I could, before I could tee off. But the golf course had standards, they had rules, and much to my surprise, it really didn't surprise anyone else in my group, they didn't think anything of that. I mean, golf courses, even public libraries have standards and rules that we all sort of agree to, we all know, we all abide by, and yet when it comes to the church, and the church kind of says, well, you ought to do this or you ought not to do that. It, it, it sort of hits us like a lightning bolt out of heaven. Like, really? God expects this from me? Hmm. Why do you think that is? At the same time, when the church doesn't have standards when people don't live up to the expectations of the world around us, then what are we accused of? Then we're accused of hypocrisy, being hypocrites, right? And we hear both of these, both of these criticisms. The church is so uptight, I would never want to join the church. Or, or the church is full of hypocrites, I would never want to be a part of that. Hopefully you're beginning, friends, to, to see what Acts 5 is all about. Okay? Let's, let's begin with, with sort of a big picture view. I, I alluded just a bit earlier to the fact that this text sounds very much like an Old Testament text. Um, like it came right out of the Old Testament. Specifically, it, it does sound like one of those stories. It sounds like the story of a person named Achan, actually. You read about Achan uh, back in Joshua chapter 7. And Joshua is, is leading the people into the promised land, right? They've just come out of the wilderness. Now Joshua has taken them um, across the river, and uh, they're going into the promised land. They've just defeated and had their first battle with the, the big city, Jericho, right? They were the big threat. They were the enemy. Uh, they've defeated Jericho. Actually, it wasn't Joshua so much who defeated Jericho, but if you remember the story, it was God who defeated Jericho. If you back up, there's, there's a parallel here, right? There's a parallel in the fact that when Israel was crossing into the promised land and beginning that battle, the kingdom of God was moving forward. It was advancing. God was, was advancing his kingdom literally. And that's exactly what's happening here in the book of Acts. Jesus Christ has ascended into heaven. He's taken up his throne. And he is advancing his kingdom now in the world. And it is on the way to when we will celebrate this feast with our Lord in heaven. That's when it will all be completed, all be finished. It's very similar in terms of time. In the Old Testament, Joshua, the beginning of the advance of God's kingdom. In the book of Acts, it's the beginning of the advance of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. But you have to remember that it's God who's the one who's doing the advancing. Okay? God is doing the advancing. That was clear in the battle for Jericho, right? Do you remember how that battle worked, walking around the walls? Um, 
It always brings to mind the words from Veggie Tales to me. Now you know where my mind works at. Um, but Veggie Tales, they sing a song from the perspective of the, the residents of Jericho. Keep walking. Keep on walking around those walls. Keep walking. But it isn't going to fall. Keep walking. It's plain to see that your brains are very small, so keep walking. Just keep walking around that wall. But the veggies were wrong, weren't they? Because the walls did fall down. And the point is, this was God's battle. God didn't even need Israel for this battle. This is God's battle. And what he asked before that battle even began was that all the spoils would go to him. Just to prove this is God's work. It's God's battle. It's God's claim to the land. It's not Israel's. Now, if you remember what happened with Achan, what did he do? He kept back some of those spoils for himself. And by doing so, he was saying, you know, this isn't God's battle. This is our battle. We don't need God. We can fight this battle. We can win. The spoils will be ours. The glory will be ours, not God's. But you know the rest of the story as well, right? The next city on Israel's agenda, the next city they were supposed to conquer was the little city of Ai. All right? So this would be like the U.S. Army advancing on Hartford. This was going to be an easy one. But what happened? Ai sent Israel's army running like a bunch of little children. And so the question was, what happened? What went wrong? And the finger was pointed back at Achan. Achan was the problem, and the penalty for Achan was death. The penalty was death, which I think in many of our modern minds we, think, we say, well, that, that seems extreme. That seems extreme. Friends, Achan's ghost is all over the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Because here again, you have people who seem to want to enjoy all the benefits of the kingdom of God without the actual presence of God himself. Without the actual presence of the holy God that we know through Jesus Christ. And friends, the point is, and something we all have to learn, is that you cannot have the kingdom of God without God. You cannot have the kingdom of God without Jesus Christ. Israel couldn't. Ananias and Sapphira couldn't. We cannot. One quick example of how this can play out in our lives, it's, it's often been said that in our nation today we're in a post-Christian or a, a post-church age. And what that means is that <clears throat> there was a time in our nation when, when Christianity so influenced our culture and our lives, our laws, the way we do things, that on most moral issues, Christians and non-Christians <clears throat> thought pretty much alike. In fact, Tim Keller talks about how his own parents were Christians. His in-laws were not believers. They were not Christians. But if you were to ask them, their thoughts on a lot of different moral issues, things like premarital sex or divorce or uh, abortion or just war, uh, both sets of parents would have said pretty much the same thing. Okay? 
That was what we call the the church age or the Christian age. God's kingdom, in other words, had so powerfully impacted our society that really the public schools taught pretty much the same thing we teach in our Sunday schools. But as a result of that, what happened? God became expendable. God became expendable, and we began to rely on our culture to teach us and to teach our children all the morals of life. And now, friends, what we are faced with in this post-Christian age, when our culture doesn't teach the moral values of Christ, what we're faced with in this age is going back as a church to the very beginning and inviting Jesus Christ, the person, back into our hearts and saying, Jesus, I render my heart to you. This is where your kingdom begins. And it grows from here. This is the job of the church today, friends. It's not to change our morals through politics or whatever. It's the, it's the work of the church to bow our knees to Jesus Christ once again and say, rule my heart, rule the hearts of your church, and expand your kingdom from there. Friends, we cannot have the kingdom of God without Jesus Christ. And the ghost of Achan is always a reminder of that. Always a reminder of that. But... As, uh, as Old Testament as this text may seem, there are definitely some New Testament themes here as well. And I want to touch on two of them. The first is this. It's what the Apostle Peter mentions in verse 3 of chapter 5. He describes the sin of Ananias this way. He says, Ananias, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. You've lied to the Holy Spirit. I'm sure that comes as, or came as somewhat of a shock to Ananias because he had lied to Peter, he had lied to the church really, but had he really lied to the Holy Spirit? It comes as a, as a bit of a shock to us as well because sometimes I think we think the sin of Ananias is the fact that he didn't come with the whole sale price of his land and give it to the church. It's clear from the text that that was not the sin of Ananias. Okay? Peter even says it later. Ananias, Sapphira, the land belonged to you, okay? You didn't have to sell it. You chose to. The prophets, when it was sold, it still all belonged to you. You didn't have to give it away, um, but you did. That was not the problem with, uh, with Ananias. It was not that they held back some of the money. Their sin was that they lied to the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> now, how did that happen? Well, think about how the story is presented to us, right? I mean, the church is living in, in a beautiful time when, you know, one person in this pew is sharing with another person in this pew and, and likewise over here and making sure that everyone has enough. And then we read about Joseph called Barnabas, right, who sold his land and gave all the money to the church and said, distribute it as there is need. And it was a beautiful thing. And they called him son of encouragement. And Ananias and Sapphira were looking at this and saying, boy, 
You know, I wish people looked at us that way. And so Ananias and Sapphira, they sold some land and, and they brought the money to the church and led them to believe that that was the whole price, right? So what's happening here is Ananias is trying to look like Barnabas. He's pretending to be something that he's not. He's pretending really to be totally invested in the kingdom of God. And all that Jesus Christ is doing in this world, he's really not that invested. What he was doing was telling the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, I'm like Barnabas, not Ananias. There's nothing really wrong with who Ananias was. I mean, Ananias, in his own way, was very generous, right? He sold his property. He gave half the proceeds, I think, to the church. That's a pretty generous thing. But what Ananias wouldn't do is say to the Holy Spirit, this is who I am. I am someone who gives half. I am not like Barnabas who gives everything. What Ananias was trying to do was say, Holy Spirit, I'm just like Barnabas. I give it all. I'm totally committed. And friends, when you tell the Holy Spirit that, what are you saying? You're saying, Holy Spirit, I don't really need you. I don't need you to make me more generous than I am. I don't need you to make me, you know, more like Barnabas. I don't need you to make me more like Jesus Christ. I don't really need you, Holy Spirit. That's the sin of Ananias. It's that sin of not really wanting to be like Barnabas. Not really wanting to be like Jesus, but just wanting to look like Jesus. And friends, when a church is is full of people who who just want to look like Jesus, then what does the church become? It becomes a place that sort of looks like the kingdom of God, but it's, it's really not like the kingdom of God. And that's a problem. That's a problem. What happens to us when this sort of thing creeps in to our lives? You know, you can look at this story, and I think we do, and we think, wow. I mean, God seems really extreme here. He seems to have taken this too far. I mean, the punishment doesn't fit the crime. And then we begin to wonder, is, is God still like that today? Am I, am I still like vulnerable to God striking me dead if I do this kind of thing? And friends, I'm not going to tell you that, oh no, God is, God is safe and, and you, know, you don't have to worry about this sort of thing. In fact, I'm going to tell you just the opposite. That if we're living the kind of life Ananias is living, then we're already dying. We're already dying. Because what's happening in our lives is the Holy Spirit wants to make us into this new person that Jesus Christ died and rose for us to be. And every time we tell the Holy Spirit, 
I'm already, I've already reached the point that I want to get to. I've gone far enough. This is far. I can fool everybody else from here on out. As long as we keep telling the Holy Spirit that, what, what happens? We, that, that picture of Jesus Christ just gets farther and farther away. It falls farther and farther out of reach. And, and that church that, that we read about in Acts 2 and Acts 4, where everyone loves each other and, and, and spends time in the Word and, and is making sure that everyone is cared for and loved, that picture falls further and further out of reach. While we look at ourselves and we tell ourselves and we tell each other and we tell the Holy Spirit, um, I, I, I'm good enough. I've reached the point that I want to reach. And so we come to church, right, and, and we're all smiles and we look good and, and we don't tell anyone about the cancer of bitterness that's in our bones. And it's been there for a long time. And we put on these happy faces and try to convince everyone that our, our marriages are wonderful and everything is good when, when underneath it's rotting and it's almost dead. And, and we come to church and, and we nod with, you know, the story about the Good Samaritan and, and how, yeah, we ought to love other people. And, and yet deep inside we hold this, this bitterness and the, this resentment toward, toward anyone who's different from us and we can't seem to get beyond it. And friends, when we tell the Holy Spirit those things, when we tell each other those things, it's not doing us any good. It's killing us day by day. That picture of Christ, that new creation that we are in Jesus is just, it's becoming more and more distant. And when we don't need the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> then what? The ghost of Achan. We're just trying to live like a church without Jesus. The last thing um, I want to point out about this text is what I'll call the paradox of, of Jesus. The paradox of Jesus. Um, <clears throat> give you a little context. In Luke's first description of the Holy Spirit-filled church that I pointed out at the end of chapter 2, there Luke tells us that among other things, okay, he says everyone was filled with awe. Everyone was filled with awe. The word there in the Greek is fear. Everyone was filled with fear. The fear of the Lord. He also tells us in that text that um, when you get to the end of it, it says that um, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The Lord added to their number daily. Note that combination. There was fear of the Lord and there was growth in the church. You find that same combination in Acts 9, after the conversion of Saul. Um, you read this, that, that the church was encouraged by the Holy Spirit and grew, grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. Again, grew in numbers, the fear of the Lord is present. Um, here in Acts chapter 4, at the end of chapter 4, that description of the church that we read, you have a similar account of the church, right? All the believers sharing everything. 
You have this great description of the great power with which the church is testifying and the great grace that they're living in, but there's no mention here of the growth of the church. And there's no mention of the fear of the Lord. And then you get to chapter 5 and the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And what happens? Ananias drops dead. And what? And you read that the fear of the Lord sees the people. And if you don't get it, it's repeated. When Sapphira dies and is buried, what happens? A great fear, a great fear seized the church. And that's where you have the first, um, the first word, first time the church is called the church in the book of Acts. It's filled with a great fear. And then if you just read a little further than we read this morning, you get to verse 13, and it says, an odd thing, no one dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, More and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. It's it's kind of amazing. It's a paradox. It's a paradox. People were afraid to join, and yet they joined anyway, and the church continued to grow. There is a great fear of the Lord in the church, and the church begins to grow once again. It continues on in that growth. How do we explain that? Well, it's not the way the church growth experts have been telling us for the last number of decades, because they've been telling us, hey, if your worship is loud, you know, your music is loud, your arts are creative, your programs are entertaining, then the church is going to grow. That's not what the book of Acts says. The book of Acts says, when the Lord is present in your church, and everybody knows it, and there is a fear, a respect for the holiness of the person of God, for his character, for his righteousness, that's when the church begins to grow. That's when the church begins to grow. Friends, Jesus did not come into the world to downplay the holiness of God, did he? He didn't come to tell us, you know, don't worry about him. He's, a, he's really a nice guy at heart. Um, you'll like him. Don't worry about him. Life is like a picnic. It's not what Jesus came to say. Jesus came to give us peace with God, with a holy God, by taking away our sin and giving us his righteousness his holiness, so that we could dwell with a holy God. Jesus did this by giving his own life. He did not come to tell us, ah, God, he's understanding. God is holy. The other side of that is, in Jesus Christ, so are we. So are we. The church has nothing to gain, friends, from downplaying the holiness of God, the fear factor of God, because when it does, then what? There's no need for Jesus Christ. And that's what the world wants us to believe, that there really is no need for Jesus Christ, not in the church. God is here, and therefore we have every need 
for Jesus Christ. And a church without Jesus Christ is not a church at all. And who is the one? Who is the one who comes into this place and convicts us of the fact that a great God is among us? Who is the one who instills in us a great fear? And then who is the one who tells us that there is also a great grace available in Jesus Christ? And who is the one then who fills us with a great gratitude that fills us with a great power to witness? It's the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. We need Jesus Christ. We need God the Father. We won't be a church without him. Will you bow with me in prayer? Holy Spirit, we are not prepared to come to this table unless, unless you show us our sin and unless you show us the great grace that's available in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross and how that work was totally and completely enough to make us right with God, to give us peace with God. Holy Spirit, come among us now and show us where we fall short of what Jesus died for us to be. Convict us of our sin and continue to make us holy. Lord, don't desert us. We need you. And now lift us up to where we can commune with the living and risen Jesus Christ, our Lord. Give us a taste of what is to come. And thank you for the promise that you will never abandon your church. Holy Spirit, fill us now. Amen.